Well, it's been quite a week for me. I have uh, spent time looking for a house. I've spent uh, a lot more time hanging out with some people around this, this area. I've gotten to know a number of folks, been to some meetings with the church, spent some time uh, with Roger and with, man, I can't remember any of the other names, but I will, I promise. I will eventually get, I will eventually get all the names uh, of every single person who I have ever met here. Um, I'll tell you, one of the hardest part about the week, though, is on one of the nights this week, I had a phone call from uh, back home, and my, do- my dog, uh, who we thought was going to live for another month or two, uh, could, not, could not make it, and the young guy who was looking after him called and said, I don't think that we're going to be able to keep him going, so he had to kind of hurry around to call all of our neighbors and other people to see if they could come and pick him up and take him to the vet, and so I'm very, it was very sad that he is no longer with us. He was a great, great dog, and so there's been a lot of uh, ups and a lot of downs this week. One of the downs was that I had to say goodbye to my wife on Friday as she was flying away, where our daughter was still in, uh, in Vancouver, and she's, you know, she's 11, and so we wanted to make sure that she had some people with her, especially her, her mom, for, uh, you know, without having to be there for too long alone. So uh, when I drove my wife to the airport, um, I, I dropped her off, and as she was walking into the, into the terminal, I remembered, uh, you know, so you have these moments where these thoughts just flash through your mind about all the times you've been with your spouse over all these years, and all the challenges and difficulties and joys and sorrows that you've experienced with them, and I just had one of those moments, those epiphanies, when it just sort of came upon me, and I realized that uh, I was going to see her for uh, a few days, and uh, I was just so thankful for uh, the woman that God has given me uh, in my life. A number of years ago, uh, I had that kind of epiphany. It was before we got married, actually, and it was kind of the moment that I decided, wow, this is the woman I think I want to marry. Uh, and I didn't really know, know what to do with those emotions. I had not felt that way about anyone uh, before, praise God, and I didn't really know how to express them in any substantial and important way. And so what I ended up doing is I wrote a song. I am not a songwriter, but uh, the overflow of these emotions, had, something had to happen with them, and so I ended up writing this song for my, my wife. I cannot remember it. She says she remembered it, but I do remember that when I sang it to her, that was like, man, that was like the, the secret sauce that made her want to marry me. So any of you young men out there, take note. Uh, that approach, though, that kind of response to the emotions that rise up within you, like music, art, is a common human experience. It's something that has happened throughout all the ages. I have a friend who told me that you should never write unless you're angry. I don't know if that's true or not, but he's written lots of books, and his, his point is well taken, that there, if you're going to create something, there has to be some sort of emotion that is driving that creation in order to give it some pop, some power. It's, uh, art is not something you can just create when, you know, like a nine-to-five job. You just sit down and, and you do it. It has to be driven by, by emotion, and one of the great emotions when we, when we see something amazing or experience something dramatic is, is, by, is poetry, is, is song. And you see this throughout Scripture, to be honest with you. Uh, Adam sees Eve for the very first time, right? God puts him to sleep, takes a, 
his rib and he makes Adam, uh, he makes Eve out of Adam. He sees her and the first thing he says in Genesis 2.23 is that this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman in Hebrew, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. She's, she's the Isha to my Ish. She is the feminine form of me. Whoa! She's phenomenal. So I gotta write a song. When the people of Israel come across the Red Sea, you know, they've seen all of these crazy things happen. The, the Egyptians chase them. They've come now to the edge of the Red Sea. They thought they were hemmed in. God parts the sea. They go across the Red Sea. Uh, Pharaoh's army gets swallowed up, and they're on the other side of the Red Sea. And in Exodus 15, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Poetry, art, flows out of us when we see something magnificent, when we experience something that we don't have words for. We have to paint or sculpt or write a song. In Romans chapter 11, Verses 33 to 36, you, you actually have one of the more beautiful songs that's been written in scripture. It's about God and it is uh, the Apostle Paul's response to what he has written in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. This mag magnificent gospel, this mystery that was once hidden but now has been made known in, in Christ. That God has saved us apart from anything we've done he has saved us, chosen us to be his people, and he has not just chosen us out of the Jews, but the Gentiles as, as well. Paul, he has to respond to this magnificent news. And when he does, this is what he says. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now he continues the book, of course, at the end, but he had to, you know, he has to exalt at this right in the, in the middle. So what I want to do in the next few minutes is I just want to take this, this small poem, this small song, and I want to pull it apart a little bit and I want to show you what he's talking about. What particularly about God is he excited about as he's described what God has done in history to save a people for himself? So here, here's what we're gonna learn. We're gonna learn that, number one, God is wiser. Second, that God is better. And then finally, that God is the point. God is wiser, he's better, and he's the point. Here's the first of those. God is wiser, verse 33 of Romans chapter 11. I'll read it again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. Oh, he starts. 
You know, that's probably a word that we skip by. If we were just reading this passage, you skip by the O, you know. But actually, it's a pretty important word in this context. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time a number of years ago. My wife and, actually, and I actually got free tickets to Las Vegas. First time in Las Vegas. We flew to Las Vegas. We were there for about, I don't know, 12 hours and realized we're not sure that Las Vegas is the, our kind of place. But we had won. I put some money into a little one of those jackpot machines and it came, it came out and I got like 20 bucks. So I went to the car rental agency and I asked them how much for a car. And they said, $18. This is great. So we rented a car and we drove to the Grand Canyon. We saw what people could do with all of the excitement that they created in Las Vegas. And so we thought, well, maybe we'll see what God can do at the Grand Canyon. So we drove, whatever, four hours to the Grand Canyon. You know, it's, it's an interesting place because as you drive into the Grand Canyon, you, you can see that there's an end to the tree line. And where I'm from, ends of tree lines mean that there's lakes or oceans or something on the other side. But you can see that there's this end to the tree line, forest, 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 and then an end to the tree line. And I didn't know what was over there. And so we stopped actually on the side of the road in a place that you could walk kind of through the trees to the edge of the tree line. So we, we did that. I got out, walked over to the edge of the Grand Canyon. And I came out from the edge of the trees and I took like two steps and, and seriously, I was right on the edge of the Grand Canyon. There's no fence. There's no sign. There's nothing there. There's just well, a thousand foot drop immediately down. And I backed up and my wife was standing next to me. And, and if you had to spend a whole lot of time with me, you'd know that I, I talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. I can talk about anything all the time. Turn the radio off, got to talk. But for one time in my life, I just stood there Oh, you know, if you, if you stand on the edge, you can see the clouds are below you at times and they cast a shadow on the far rim of the canyon. You can see the, the stratified colors of the rocks, this little river winding through the base of it. Oh, it takes your breath away. There's this place in New Zealand where I lived for several years. It's in the South Island. It's a, it's a valley that leads to the mountain called Mount Cook. It's the largest mountain in, in New Zealand. And when, you, when you're driving down this valley road, uh, you get to the point where the mountains start to rise up. But the valley is flat. It's just flat. And then all of a sudden, mountain. So you can walk over to the edge of the mountain, put one foot on the, on the ground, the flat ground, and you can stick the other one up on the mountain. And you stand at the base of that mountain, you look up and you, yeah. oh. Takes your breath away. Maybe, maybe you've been in the Notre Dame in Paris and you walk in the front door and you look up at this amazing structure or on the edge of the, the ocean and looked out as the storm comes in. Oh, that's what we say when we experience something amazing. And, and that's what Paul starts with here. Oh, 
Now, as I said before, the, the reason he starts with his O, his Grand Canyon, his edge of the ocean is look what God has done in Christ. The death and burial of God turned out to be the greatest moment in the history of humankind. The worst evil ever done ended up being the greatest joy for all. Oh, oh. What kind of God does it take to work sovereignly to pull that together? And to keep his promises to the people of Israel, even though they were rejecting him, he hardened them so that he could open a door for the Gentiles, and then he brings it all together so that he can actually win the Jews back because they're, they're now jealous of the Gentiles. That's Romans 11. Oh! Oh. Now when Paul talks about this, he, he, what causes him the oh, when we stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, we're just enamored with the beauty of it, the physical beauty of it. But what, what causes Paul to be enamored is the unsearchable judgments, you saw that language, and the inscrutable ways of God, the, the unsearchable judgments and the inscrutable ways. That doesn't mean that God's decisions or his actions are like a mystery. They're unsearchable. Who knows what they are? No, actually he's saying his, his inscrutable judgments and his, or sorry, his inscrutable ways and unsearchable judgments have been re revealed. And what we thought was a mess, the death of God, what we thought that was a mess was actually God working together providentially to bring about the greatest joy in the history of humankind. We just didn't see it until it was revealed to us and then we said, oh, oh. And then he quotes this uh, passage in Isaiah. The passage that he's quoting, he, he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And so it, this Isaiah 40, many of you know the passage, right? So the passage that ends with, you know, they will rise up on wings of eagles and run and not grow weary, walk and not be faint. But in, in this passage, one, the thing that's emphasized in Isaiah 40, and I'll read it to you, is the size of God. And that's what he's trying to get across here. That God is not just physically amazing, but he's also wise. Immensely wise. His ways and his plans, they work together in a way that we just can't understand. Even if we look at them and look at them and look at them and try to make sense of them, that in time they will, they will actually make sense and we will say, oh, oh, oh. So Isaiah 40, verse 12, uh, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You just gotta look at the imagery in the hollow of his hand. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the, the breadth of his hand marked off the heaven? I love that image, breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. Uh, years ago, I came across this, um, this analogy or this image that was written in a science textbook to try to give people the idea of how large the universe is. And so I'll give you some of the stats. Uh, if you got in a, in a plane that could go light speed, 
right? So that would be a good plane. That's, a, that's like a Tesla plane now. Right, you, get, you get in a light speed traveling plane. This is how long it would take you to get to different locations around the universe. Uh, the moon would take 1.2 seconds in your light speed plane. Mars would be four minutes. The sun would take 8.4 minutes. Uh, Jupiter would take 35 minutes. Pluto, little Pluto, five and a half hours. Alpha Centauri, which is the closest star system to our solar system, would take you four years in a light speed plane. The center of the Milky Way galaxy would take you 38,000 years. And the Andromeda galaxy, which is the next galaxy over from the Milky Way, would take you 2.2 million years. That's just the next galaxy. I don't know if you've ever seen the image from the Hubble Space Telescope. It, it shoots out into the universe and it sees like thousands of galaxies. Thousands of galaxies. And if you came to God and you asked him, how big is that? He would say, about that big. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a, in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, he moves from the language of just sheer size of God to his wisdom now. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who, who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Is there anyone who knows more than he does about the way his world should function? Anyone? No, his wisdom is as large as his size. God is incomparable. He, 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 in his size and his power, he stands alone. And so it is also with his wisdom. His plans and his ways are better. They're wiser. And that's lovely to know. Because I, I don't know about you, you spend most of the time in your life, just like I do, looking around at a world that looks absolutely chaotic. My life is absolutely chaotic. I think I'm supposed to be going this direction and then the Lord takes a detour this way and I'm like, what are you doing? I honestly, I think we're on, I'm on plan Q at this point. Not plan B, not plan C. I'm on plan Q at this point. Helen Roseveers, this is a lovely little story that uh, she wrote a book. She, she's a missionary in Africa in the Belgian Congo for years and years, a medical missionary anyway. She, she was uh, a doctor in this little village and uh, she wrote a book called Living Faith to kind of describe her experiences there. It's a great book. You should read Helen Roseveers, Living Faith. She tells this very famous story. Maybe you've heard it before, but it really does illustrate the wisdom of God Here's what she said. She said, on one night in Central Africa, I had worked 
hard to help a mother in the labor ward, but in spite of all that we could do, she died leaving us with a tiny premature baby and a crying two-year-old daughter. We would have a difficulty uh, keeping the baby alive. We had no incubator. We had no electricity to run an incubator and no special feeding facilities. Although we lived on the equator, nights were often chilly and treacherously uh, drafts would come through the room. A student midwife went for the box we had uh, for such babies and for the cotton wool that the baby would be wrapped in. Another went to stoke up the fire and fill a hot water bottle. She came back shortly in distress to tell me that in filling the bottle, it had burst. Rubber perishes easily in tropical climates, and it's our last hot water bottle, she exclaimed. As in the West, uh, it's no good crying over spilled milk, so in Central Africa, it might be considered no good crying over a burst hot water bottle. They don't grow on trees, and there's no drug stores down forest pathways. All right, I said. Put the baby as near the fire as you can sa- as safely can. Sleep between the baby and the door to keep it from drafts, drafts, and your job tonight is to keep this baby alive. The following noon, as I did most days, I went to have prayers with, my, with many of the orphanage children who chose to gather with me. I gave the youngsters various suggestions of things to pray about, and I told them about this tiny baby. And I explained our problem about keeping the baby warm enough, mentioning, of course, the hot water bottle. And the baby could so easily die if it got chilled, and I also told them about the, two, about the two-year-old sister crying because her mother had died. So during the prayer time, our one 10-year-old girl, Ruth, she prayed with the usual blunt consciousness of our African children. Please, God, she prayed, send us a, a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow. God, the baby will be dead, so please send it this afternoon. While I gasped inwardly at the audacity of the prayer, she added by way of corollary, and while you're at it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so she'll know you really love her? As often with children's prayers, I was put on the spot. Could I honestly say amen? I just didn't believe that God could do this. Oh, look, I know he can do everything. The Bible says so, but there are limits, aren't there? The only way God could answer this particular prayer would be by sending a parcel from the homeland. I'd been in Africa for almost four years at that time, and I had never, ever received a parcel from home. Anyway, if anyone did send a parcel, who in the world would put in a hot water bottle? I live on the equator. But halfway through the afternoon, while I was teaching in the nurse's training school, a message was sent that there was a car at my front door. And by the time I reached home, the car had gone. But there on the veranda was a large 22-pound parcel. I felt tears pricking my eyes. I couldn't open the parcel alone, so I sent for the orphanage children. Together we pulled off the string, carefully undoing each knot. We folded the paper, taking care not to tear it unduly. Excitement was mounting. Some 30 or 40 pairs of eyes were focused on the large cardboard box. From the top, I lifted out brightly colored knitted jerseys, sweaters, for those of us in this state, she's British. Uh, Eyes sparkled as I gave them out. Then 
there were knitted bandages for the leprosy patients and the children began to look, you know, a little bit bored. Next came a box of mixed raisins and sultanas. That would make a nice batch of buns for the weekend. And as I put my, in my hand once again, I felt the, oh, could it really be? I grasped it and pulled it out. Yes, it, a brand new rubber hot water, hot water bottle. I cried. I'd not ask God to send it. I, I'd not really truly believed he could. Ruth was in the front row of the children. She rushed forward crying out, if God sent that bottle, he must have sent a dolly too. Rummaging down to the bottom of the box, she pulled out a small, beautifully dressed dolly and her eyes shone. She'd never doubted. Looking up at me, she asked, can I go over with you, mommy, and give this dolly to that little girl so that she knows that Jesus really loves her? That parcel had been on its way for five whole months, packed up by my former Sunday school class whose leader had heard and obeyed God's prompting to send a hot water bottle even to the equator. One of the girls had put in a dolly for an African child five months earlier in answer to the believing prayer of a 10-year-old to bring it that afternoon. Oh. You know, sometimes we see it all come together. There are stories like this that litter our lives. Sometimes we see all the threads come together and we say, oh. And then other times we're just left wondering if these threads will ever come together, if these plans that God has made will ever come together. They weren't our plans. We didn't want that person to die. We did not want that relationship to end. And we wonder, Lord, what are you doing? But if Paul's to be believed, one day we will stand on the edge of his providence and say, Oh, so God is wiser. He's also better, <clears throat> similar. Paul carries on his, his argument in verse 35 of Romans chapter 11. He said, or who has given a gift to him, to God, that, it, that he might be repaid? To whom is God obligated, in other words? Is there, is there anybody in the universe that God has to give an answer to because of the way that he's worked or what he's done or how he's reasoned or the moral uh, framework that he's created? Does God have to answer to anyone for who he is and what he, and what he does? Who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? That's a quotation actually from Job 41.11. Paul, Paul's drawing this language from Job and so I'm convinced that he wants in your mind the story of Job to be just readily present. I think he's drawing attention to the story of Job. So let me tell you the story of Job, okay? Shorthand, story of Job. 40 whatever chapters in three minutes. Here we go. Job's a wealthy guy. A wealthy, faithful man. In fact, he's so faithful that when his kids all get together and they have a party afterwards, he like goes to the, he goes and offers sacrifices for them just in case they might have sinned. 
So he's looking out for his kids. He's super wealthy. He's considered one of the greatest men of the East, as it says in the first chapter of Job. And then the scene shifts to heaven, and there's God, and Satan is walking through heaven. Don't ask me how that works. It just it, Okay, Satan's walking through heaven, and uh, God stops him and says, have you looked at Job? He's a pretty great guy, eh? And Satan's like, oh, come on. The only reason that this guy does anything for you is because you coddle him. Like, it's not hard when you're living in the best house and you have this really great family, God, to, to, to love you. But if you let me take that stuff away from him, he'll curse you to your face. Okay, says the Lord. Let's see. And so Satan takes it all away. All his stuff. And there's this little section in Job where like, you have to almost slow down because one person, after another, one messenger after another is coming right on the heels and they knock on the door of Job's house and they say, Job, there were a whole bunch of raiders and they came in and they stole all of your animals. And the next guy, as soon as that guy was done, comes right on his heels, Job, all of your servants are dead. Fire from heaven fell and just did, burned them all alive. One after another and after another. And then the final one says, Job, Job, your children were having a party in their house and this great wind came and it lifted the four, four corners of the roof and it dropped them right on them. And they, Job, they're dead. Your family, all of them, are dead. So Job turns and he goes to a quiet place and he says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So the scene shifts and it goes back to heaven and Satan's walking through heaven and God's like, eh, pretty cool, eh? I mean, this guy's a really faithful dude. And Satan says, right, the only reason that he's faithful is because you don't let me touch his body. You don't let me give him sickness. Just let me... Hurt him. You've heard these humans, they, this moment they have a hangnail, they're yelling. But if you let me touch his body, if you give, let me give him illness, then he will curse you to your face. Okay, says the Lord. Satan comes down and he gives Job boil, boils, this massive welts all over his body. I mean, it's a really gross scene. I mean, he's basically oozing pus and blood. And he sits on a on a pile of ashes, you know, a sign of mourning. And he's so, he hurts so much and he, he itches so much that he takes this broken piece of pottery and he's just scraping his body with it. Can you imagine? He's scraping his body and his wife comes to him and says, what are you doing? Curse God and die. If this is the way God treats us, treats you, why are you still serving him? And he's like, listen, are we gonna... Are we gonna to presume to accept good things from God and not evil, not bad things? Nothing he says, and nothing he says, he sins against God. Remarkably faithful guy, and then his friends show up. His three buddies, you know what? The three buddies are there, and for the first week, they don't say anything, which is exactly what you should do in a moment like this, right? You don't come in with your mouth going, I've got a theological answer for you now that you're sitting in the hospital mourning the death of your child. He comes in, and he's, they're quiet for a week, but then when they open their mouths, everything goes wrong. Here's their argument with Job. They're like, well, Job, look, after this week we spent sitting with you mourning, I, we gotta tell you, we got some theology that we want to teach you. Here's the way it works. If you do good things, 
God will give you good things. And if you do bad things, God will give you bad things. You are experiencing bad things, ergo, you did bad things. So you gotta look back on your life and you gotta figure out what is it that you have done to make it so that God is just mad at you or God has just given this stuff to you. Repent of whatever it is. Scour your life looking for it. So Job's like, I have. But there's, there's nothing there's nothing there. And they're like, no, you, you certainly, you must have something. No, there's nothing, he says. In fact, if I could have a moment to just get God in, in the stand and, and prosecute him, I, he would see that he's wrong, that everything he's done to me is not according to the rules, that my life should be better as a servant of his. I want an audience with the Almighty. Be careful what you ask for, because he gets it. In Job 38, you have one of the most poignant passages of scripture in the Bible. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Isn't that interesting? It's the same thing that knocked the house down that killed his children, the wind. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you and you make it known to me. And you know so much, Job? Let me ask you some questions and you inform me about the way things should be done. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Who, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched out the line upon it or, or on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, you must know the answer to these questions because you clearly know that I'm somehow in the wrong for what I've done. So tell me how I should have made my world. You get 70 questions from God. You just read it. Boom, boom, boom. Over and over again. Where were you? What about the hippo? Explain all the animals you see and the world as it's created and how it functions and works. Where were you, Job? Where were you? To tell me how this all should have happened. Halfway through the question, Job's, Job's like, no, I'm, I'm tapping out, but God's like, no, no, no. You wanted to have a conversation. You wanted an audience with the Almighty. I, let's keep going. I got other questions, and he keeps coming with more questions. He starts talking about, God starts talking about his, his power over what's called the Leviathan, which was this ancient, they, they believed it was an ancient uh, sea monster. Um, you know, they didn't have like uh, scuba diving equipment in those days. And so when there were animals or things like whales or other kinds of crocodiles or, or things that came up, big snakes would come up to the surface of the water, they'd be like, Loch Ness Monster. And so they believed that the, the water was the abyss. It was an uncontrollable abyss. And underneath it, you don't know what's going on there, but they, they thought that there was a monster called the Leviathan that was uncontrollable, that governed that whole thing. 
And so God starts asking Job about the Leviathan. In Job 41, he says, can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook and tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose and pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Like in other words, you have so much power over it that it's gonna be like, I give in, can I just be your slave instead of being treated so badly? Can you make a pet of it? Like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women in your house. Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it among their merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you'll remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false and mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? You can't even handle the crocodile. And then the line that Paul quotes. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything in heaven belongs to me. You, you can feel the power of a cane. No one is in a position to judge God. No one is in a position where he is obligated to explain himself to them. I have preached lots of sermons about very difficult passages, especially in the Old Testament, and it's invariably someone will come up, you know, passage about, hey, God put a lying spirit in the mouths of these prophets, <laughs> or look at all the Canaanites God is killing. There's books written about this these days. How can we believe? They say, the question's always the same. How can we believe in a God who would do that? Or more broadly, how can we believe in a God who has this sexual ethic in the scripture that's so out of step with the culture around us? How can you believe that the Bible is a morally repugnant book in the eyes of so many. And you hear what people are doing there. They're kind of placing themselves as God's moral betters. They're saying, you know what? If I had God in the dock, if I had God on trial, I, could, I would prosecute him and I'd let him know exactly how it is that he did things wrong. But you know, the, the one guy who had a chance to do that got God on the witness stand and it wasn't God being prosecuted, it was that guy. There is no one who is a moral better of God. I get it. We, we like to say things like, oh, I wish hell weren't a thing. And I wish God had chosen everyone. And I wish God, and I wish, 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 as if we are more compassionate than he. As if the doctrines that the scripture teaches are, are kind of like, oh, we kind of have to hide that one back over here in the corner and we'll bring it out only on rare occasions because it's so embarrassing to us, this part of the Bible. But you hear what we're doing when, when we do that, right? Like essentially we're placing ourselves in, 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 in a superior judgmental position over above God and saying you don't do things right. Or when we shake our fists at him in the middle of our lives because things have not gone the way we wanted them to go. And we say, ah, you've wronged me. 
but he is better. His wisdom is better. Finally, look, God is the point. This passage ends with some of the, you should write this, you know, people put stuff on their mirrors, you should write this one. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I don't know if you've ever kind of just looked at, how, looked at how we talk about our contribution to the things in our lives. It is highly, uh, galactically overstated. <laughs> I'm responsible for all the things that have happened in my life. We've been looking at houses this week. It's funny to see the, the pictures and the you know, sayings that people have on their walls. We went through many different houses and Many of the houses have these sayings like, you can do whatever you want, and the world is your oyster, and go forward and control your destiny, all that kind of stuff. I know that's what we talk about. We tell our kids that all the time. You can control your destiny. You can be whatever it is that you want to be. And yet, I, I love the impulse, and yet at the same time, I'm like, yeah, if the Lord wills, right? Have you ever thought about just salvation itself? J.I. Packer, in his lovely little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, when he talks about how it is that people come to faith in Christ, he's talking about the doctrine of election in the book, and he's saying, look, basically everyone believes the doctrine of election. They talk about it that way anyway, because whenever you ask somebody who's a Christian, how did you come to faith in Jesus, what you do not get is, well, I was really brilliant, and I figured out that this is the truth, and then I came to the Lord because I knew it. He, no. What you have is the, the Lord dragged me. The, the, the Lord opened my eyes. I was running away from me. He grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and he turned me around and he keeps doing it. He's just the hound of heaven. That's what you get. It's a work of God. Salvation is of the Lord, says Jonah in the belly of the fish. Salvation is of the Lord. From him is salvation. And listen, you're not gonna continue in it unless he's in it. From him and through him, the sanctifying work of God will be worked out in your life at his pace, in his way, from him and through him. And ultimately, in 10,000 years, when you and I sit in the great uh, throne room of God, he will point to you and point to me and say, see, that's a trophy of my grace. And everyone around will give him glory and praise and say, whoa, whoa, look what you did. Magnificent. From him and through him and to him are not just salvation, but, but, but what, what? All things. That means the stuff that you own and the abilities that you have are from him and they are to be used through him and ultimately given as an act of worship to him. I don't know if you've ever noticed that in every little subculture, right? So if you are a lawyer, you have a lawyer subculture. If you are a musician, you have a musician subculture. And there's a church pastor subculture. And in every little subculture, we rank people based on some standard. So maybe in the business world, we rank people based upon how many acquisitions they have made or how much money they're able to make. Money's a very good, you know, scorecard for lots of people. Well, I'm more important when I walk in the room with all of my peers because I make more money than they do. 
Or I'm more important than all of my peers at high school because when I walk into a room, I'm more beautiful or more thin or more whatever. There's always a standard that we rank people by. Have you ever thought to yourself that that standard, the thing we have that makes us feel important is usually none of our doing? I'm more important because I can dunk a basketball, says the, says, says the, the basketball player. I'm more important because I have more money, says the businessman. I'm more important because my church is big, says the pastor. And yet none of that, none of it is a, re, is a result of their planning or their excellence. It's from the Lord. It's through the Lord. And ultimately it's to the Lord, not for their glory, but for his, but his glory. Glory. James 4, this lovely little passage. Have you ever noticed? James, come now. James 4, 13. You who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Look at all our plans. We're gonna make it happen. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Man, this should be written on everyone's refrigerator during COVID, shouldn't it? You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What, what is your life, uh, your mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes instead? See, instead you ought to say, if the Lord lives, we will live and do this or that. The life you have, the breath you have, the ability you have from the Lord, through the Lord, and to the Lord. To him be glory forever and ever. Look, let me finish with this. Um, we used to have this basketball hoop in our front driveway. It was one of those ones you could adjust by going up and down, right? And so we'd have these dunk contests because I, I can't dunk. But when it's like seven feet high, I am a dominant player. My little girl used to come out and she'd wanna play with us. The boys are there, my two boys, and we'd be playing dunk hoops on each other, my little girl. And she'd wanna dunk too. And so she would grab the ball under her arm and hold it out like this and go, daddy, 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 daddy. Sometimes she'd throw it and go like, you know, maybe a foot. So what do you do when your little girl wants to dunk the basketball and she has no ability to dunk the basketball? What you do is you pick her up while she holds the basketball, but you pick her up and you go, okay, jump. jump. Dunk and she hangs on the rim, taunting her brothers, who dunked the basketball? Well, I mean, she did. Like, from her point of view, she's giving every ounce of her effort. Look at what I did! But ultimately, who dunked the basketball? Her dad. And so it is with us. All that we have, all that we do, is from him and through him and to him, and ultimately he gets the glory for everything. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who, who has he given a gift to that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory.